Justin Dillon is the founder and CEO of Made in a Free World, a platform that brings together consumers, organizations, and businesses to dismantle the $150 billion business of human trafficking. His latest book is A Selfish Plan to Change the World, Finding Big Purpose in Big Problems. His message to all of us, find your riot. I truly believe that hundreds of years from now, we will, people will look back at this generation and go, you knew it all, you had it all. You were given so much information, so much connectivity. Did you do something with it? Did you, were you able to use that connectivity and that intelligence to be able to help others and pull people out of slavery? I totally believe that's before us, but it's not going to happen if we just want it to happen overnight. It's time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Author Frederick Buechner, in his book Wishful Thinking, wrote about vocation and about finding life's purpose. And this is his famous quote, The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Today's guest says something quite similar and has taken that concept to heart. Justin Dillon was a touring and recording musician until he read a story by New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof about young Cambodian girls forced into sex slavery. He wanted to do something. He didn't know what to do. So he took a first step. I started, I was a musician at the time, and I started touring through Eastern Europe and Russia. And, you know, I started the same kind of stories that I was reading about in the New York Times. I was seeing um, show up at some of our shows, hearing hearing about some of these girls that were telling us about how labor brokers were coming through their, you know, their poor villages and hamlets and offering them these fake jobs. And I just, to me, it, I just felt like that was my unguarded moment in my life where I'm like, you know, I don't know what to do, but I know I need to start moving. I know I need to take a step towards this and try to find a way to be helpful. And, and once I took that first step, um, I never stopped walking. I'm, I'm a firm believer that your first step, you have everything you need already to take your first step. So this idea that I would need to become something else or be somewhere else in order to take a first step um, is, is, uh, is totally bankrupt. You have to take your first step inside of the context that you have. So I want to be careful. I want to be very clear that we tend to um, we tend to feel like someone needs to give us permission to change the world, and we feel like someone needs to someone seemingly more important than us needs to hand us something to do. And I absolutely believe that anyone who's ever changed the world had no idea how to do it. It's 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 clear. It's precedent. And for the small way in which I was trying to change the world, I had no idea what to do. So I decided I would. Um, start to pull my music community together and see if we could make some videos. I mean, this is like early YouTube days, and I thought, well, maybe we would make some videos. And 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 I knew some musicians that were, um, you know, winning Grammys and all the rest of it. And so it's like, well, maybe we can get some, a few famous, you know, great musicians to um, participate in this. That was my only plan. Was I wanted to just get the music community to respond. What that became. <laughs> very, very quickly was a, a full-fledged uh, theatrically released film. Uh, we called it a rockumentary on human trafficking. And, and keep in mind, this was 10 years ago. Nobody knew about the subject then. So there were people were seeing some of their favorite musicians and talking heads and interviews that I did with people 
that people had heard of, from Dr. Cornel West to Nicholas Kristof to Madeleine Albright to Ashley Judd, along with all these musicians like Moby and Cold War Kids and Modest Yahoo and Talib Kweli. We were all coming together inside of this film to bring a voice to the voiceless, and people really responded. Um, we brought people out to theaters, and it was one of the top documentaries of 2008 and very critically acclaimed, mostly because of the fact that it was so based off of this just desire to get the word out. And I was so um, I was so blown away at how much people wanted to help. From there, Justin went on to found Slavery Footprint and Made in a Free World online platforms that highlight the often invisible presence of slavery in nearly every aspect of the global economy. Justin challenges us to find our riot and bring our indignation to positive action, right where we are. His book is A Selfish Plan to Change the World, Finding Big Purpose in Big Problems. Welcome, Justin, to Progressive Spirit. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, your book uh, is about motivation for change, and you call it a, a self-help others manual. H how did you learn that being selfish and changing the world are not opposites, but actually complementary? Well, um, you're right. It, it, it is. A, the reason I call it a self-help others manual is because I think that, um, you know, just like when we get on the airplanes and they tell us that when the oxygen is going to drop or you have to put it on yourself first and then you help others, I believe that's that dynamic or that metaphor is true in just about anything we do today. Um, and I think that there's, it's a broken thought to think that in order to solve other people's problems, um, that we somehow can't solve our own, um, that there's not enough and that we have a zero sum game when it comes to fixing other people's problems. And so, um, this book is a challenge to, um, to that, uh, dynamic of, uh, that, that changing the world is a zero sum game. Um, and, uh, the challenge that I put in there is that, um, I actually believe that we start to solve a lot of our own problems for kind of the existential questions we have for ourselves. Why am I here? What's my life's purpose? What am I good at? You know, how, how far can I go? How far can my talents go? I think all of those big, big, big questions that we get to ask ourselves, we have the luxury of asking ourselves can be found by participating in the problems of others. Because one of the criticisms often of let's say, do-gooders by the others, is that oh, it's, it's a questioning of motivations. And uh, even those who want to be involved, whether we're on a local board or, or something of a volunteer group, and then we begin to question our own motivations and start to deny that there's anything in it for us, that we kind of have to be you know, altruistic and out there for others. And, and what I hear you saying is, uh, hey, own up to it, because that's actually a good motivator. Well, I just don't believe in altruism. I don't believe there's any such thing. I think it's a cop-out. And I, and I cringe when someone calls me a do-gooder. Um, mm -hmm. Not because I'm difficult or persnickety or somebody who just <laughs> has a hard time with people. I just think I'm just a doer. And sometimes it creates good things. So, uh, many times it's for me. I want to do good for me and my family. But sometimes it's good for others. And I think that we marginalize helping others into this kind of purest category of doing good. And I don't, th one, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's honest. And two, I, I don't think that we can really see how much we can do, how much good we can do when we make it something that you basically do when you feel like you have enough. To me, that, that is a very bankrupt idea that I will give back or I will do good or once, you know, once I've taken care of myself, once I've got the you know, oxygen mask on myself, I, I just believe that we shouldn't make doing good for others so special because um, I certainly don't feel special with the stuff that I've been able to do and I want others to, um, to feel the same way. I'm talking with Justin Dillon. He is the author of A Selfish Plan to Change the World, Finding Big Purpose in Big Problems. He's also the founder and CEO of Made in a Free World. Uh, let's talk about that. What is Made in a Free World and how did you get that started? Made in a Free World is a company that um, has built a software platform called Freedom, FRDM. And what that software platform does is help businesses um, what we say, we call it is we help businesses buy better. Um, if I walk back the problem a little bit, a, a few steps back, 
slavery today and the work that the purpose of our of our company is to reduce slavery and child labor in the world. Currently, there's over 40 million people uh, trapped in forced labor, slavery conditions. Um, these are people that uh, are uh, forced to work without pay under threat of violence. They're, they're uh, often economically exploited and they usually can't walk away. Many of those people find their ways into the supply chains that support our lives from the sparkles that go into makeup to the shrimp that end up in our salads and our food to the cotton that ends up in our clothing, even into some of the raw materials that go into all of our, our, all of our electronics, not just our mobile phones. So what we're seeing today in 2017 is we, we have incredible, incredible benefits from globalization. And I, I do believe in globalization. Um, I do believe that this, that we will never not live in that, in, in this context. But part of the downside of globalization is it created um, a shadow economy of forced labor. And um, not just created it, but um, exacerbated it. And so um, a lot of companies are looking for ways in which to, to help fix this. We help them um, with their purchasing. We help them identify where it might exist and help them um, find better ways to make better purchases and, and, and offer better products to their consumers. So do you do then research on, uh, on, on, on all these products and, and where they come from and, and uh, how they're developed? We do. We have the largest federated database on forced and child labor in supply chains in the world. And we've built it over the last five years. Um, and we work with uh, we offer that information to Fortune um, 500 companies and even smaller companies, schools, universities, governments. And then what's exciting about it is then we use the marketplace to fix it as opposed to just using charity. We kind of use the power of people's purchases to correct behavior is a is a nice way of saying getting people to stop exploiting people. Yeah, you say, uh, for example, you're reading your book that the, the goal isn't necessarily to shame people by a by a boycott or something like that, but it's to yeah. change the purchases. How do you do that? You know, I've, I've been working to end slavery for the last 10 years of my life. And part of my job is I meet not only those who are being enslaved, but those who are doing the enslaving. As evil and as horrific as it is, the reality is slavery is is just the bottom of of human behavior. Um, part of the challenges of globalization is it allows a lot of you know many many different countries to have access to the global marketplace. Some of that creates challenges because we can't see how people are behaving further and further deeper in supply chains. I know oftentimes we think like oh you've got to look at factories and the people that are making, you know, this mobile phone or this factory for this shoe. Yes, that was an issue a while ago, but the reality is we're looking for slavery in your toothpaste for the people that are um, being exploited in Malaysia to work on palm oil plantations, which palm oil goes into almost 50% of everything you see in the grocery store. I'm speaking with Justin Dillon. He's the author of A Selfish Plan to Change the World, Finding Big Purpose in Big Problems. And I took uh, your your website survey, Slavery Footprint, and uh, discovered I have 41 slaves working for me. Um, so it really doesn't matter uh, where you are, what you do, what you think. We always we, we are part of this uh, marketplace that's global um, that involves uh, the exploitation of people. It does. And... Um... And the, the point of slavery footprint, we created that with the uh, U.S. State Department um, years ago. And, and, and the, the purpose of that was to kind of diversify responsibility uh, around this issue. I, I think people like to throw rocks at, at, at glass buildings, and, and sometimes those glass buildings means the companies we love to buy from. Um, and that's really a cathartic and ineffectual response. I think we talked about earlier about you know the idea of boycotting a company we just don't live in that we don't live in that world anymore where boycotts have the same effect and so what we need to do is we need to be able to find ways to express our shared value the reality is that if, when consumers don't want 41 slaves working for them guess what companies don't want that either um and we need to find ways in which we can work together and made in a free world was created to be able to bridge that gap not just from consumers to businesses but really businesses to businesses it was an information gap and when the information starts to fill in, we get to see where the problems are, then we can fix them. And that's where I find um, tremendous hope in the fact that you've got 41 slaves working for you and that we can actually reduce that over the course of our lifetime just by the way that we purchase. And um, the challenge, though, and, and the challenge I tell my team all the time is we fight two things, bad guys 
and catharsis, our desire to fix problems quickly and have them done. Um, I don't know about you, but most problems in my life are persistent. They're not, uh, they're not transactional. Um, and slavery has been a persistent problem since the dawn of humankind. And so what I believe is that our generation has been handed this amazing opportunity to kick it back to the Stone Ages um, just with the power of globalization. I truly believe that hundreds of years from now, we will, people will look back at this generation and go, you knew it all, you had it all. You were given so much information, so much connectivity. Did you do something with it? Did you, were you able to use that connectivity and that intelligence to be able to help others and pull people out of slavery? I totally believe that's before us, but it's not gonna happen if we just want it to happen overnight. And so um, how did you become uh, aware of the, of, the, of the slavery issue, and how did that impact you personally? Well, I learned about it like a lot of people do. Maybe people are hearing about it for the first time in this, in this, in this, um, in this show. Um, but for me, it was just reading about it in a New York Times article you know, about 12, 13 years ago. Um, you know, we, we read we read and, are, and experience difficult stories every day. Um, but when I, when I read that story about um, young girls being sold for sex, um, being tricked um, and being, uh, being tricked by labor brokers who come to their poor family and offer them a job and end up throwing them in a brothel. I mean, that is just, that just wrecked me. And um, of course I wanted to do something. I wanted to be cathartic. I wanted to be uh I wanted to, I, I used to say, I just wanted to stab someone with scissors because I was so mad that this could, this could happen. Um, but then it went away. I mean, it didn't go away, but it like, there was nothing for me to do. When you, this is the crazy thing about our time is that we're handed very difficult information on a daily basis, maybe even an hourly basis. And the constant, constant drum of difficult information and the sky is falling type of information uh, I'm very, very concerned about what it does to our psychosis, um, or excuse me, to, 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 um, to our mental health and our ability to feel or inability to feel helpful. Um, we want to help. And I believe that most of us were designed or all of us are designed and most of us want to participate in the problems of others and be helpful. When we hear about kids in slavery, when we hear that we've got 41 slaves working for us, we want to help. We want to, we want to get involved. And I felt that very same way when I first read that article, but I didn't have a way to do anything. Um, it wasn't until I started, I was a musician at the time, and I started touring through Eastern Europe and Russia. And, you know, I started the same kind of stories that I was reading about in the New York Times. I was seeing um, show up at some of our shows, hearing hearing about some of these girls that were telling us about how labor brokers were coming through their, you know, their poor villages and hamlets and offering them these fake jobs. And I just, to me, it, I just felt like that was my unguarded moment in my life where I'm like, you know, I don't know what to do, but I know I need to start moving. I know I need to take a step towards this and try to find a way to be helpful. And, and once I took that first step, um, I never stopped walking. Since the election of uh, of our newest president, uh, people have uh, and on all of the changes that have happened. I mean, it seems like every day uh, attacks from one end or another, and it feels like if it does feel overwhelming. I mean, uh, there's a sense which people just want to gather up in a, in a fetal position, and so that feeling of being overwhelmed by the uh, bombardment of bad news uh, does exactly what you're talking about. It, it puts us in a state of uh, yeah, just just mental numbness and inability to do anything. And so, how did you take that first step? Well, what, what, where did you just take a step and and randomly, or or did you have a thought about what you were going to do? Well, I want to respond to what you just talked about with the state of our country. I I do I'm, I'm greatly concerned about um, how we tend as human beings to run to extremes when um, there is uncertainty all around us. And part of the reason I wrote this book, and I wrote it long before the election, uh, but part of the reason that I wrote this book was to help us find a, a as, as I said, a self-help others manual, meaning that our desire to know who we are, where we are, what is our purpose in life 
is actually critical to our own survival. It may not sound like it, that may sound strange to some saying, well, some people are survive, you know, are just trying to survive hunger or famine or, or even a difficult zip code in the, in the United States. I actually believe that our existential survival and our ability to understand and be able to operate and be a, a, um, a contributing human being, even in the midst of what might seem like chaos, even if it's political chaos or media chaos, um, I believe that's absolutely critical to our, to our survival and to our society's survival. Our ability to truly um, be a country and be a people that comes together and comes around um, problems and fixes them. So this book is designed to help us find our way of being able to participate in problems. For me, uh, years ago, when I first started taking a step towards trying to be helpful with um, um, ending slavery, that was all that I really had, was a desire to be helpful and a willingness to step into something that was ambiguous, meaning there was no clearly laid, no one was handing me something to do, like, Justin, take this thing and walk it over there. So what I had to do is build my own process of like, how am I going to engage this chaos, the chaos of slavery? How do I meaningfully participate without feeling like I've got to fix it overnight? And for me, I was a musician at the time. The first step was, well, I'm a firm believer that your first step, you have everything you need already to take your first step. So this idea that I would need to become something else or be somewhere else in order to take a first step um, is, is, uh, is totally bankrupt. You have to take your first step inside of the context that you have. So I want to be careful. I want to be very clear that we tend to, um, we tend to feel like someone needs to give us permission to change the world. And we feel like someone needs to, someone seemingly more important than us needs to hand us something to do. And I absolutely believe that anyone who's ever changed the world had no idea how to do it. It's, it's, it's clear, it's precedent. And for the small way in which I was trying to change the world, I had no idea what to do. So I decided I would um, start to pull my music community together and see if we could make some videos. I mean, this is like early YouTube days. And I thought, well, maybe we would make some videos. And, and, and I knew some musicians that were um, you know, winning Grammys and all the rest of it. And so it's like, well, maybe we can get some, a few famous, you know, great musicians to... Um, participate in this. That was my only plan, was I wanted to just get the music community to respond. What that became <laughs> very, very quickly was a, a full-fledged uh, theatrically released film. Uh, we called it a rockumentary on human trafficking. And and keep in mind, this was 10 years ago. Nobody knew about the subject then. So there were people were seeing some of their favorite musicians and talking heads and interviews that I did with people that people had heard of from Dr. Cornel West to Nicholas Kristoff to Madeline Albright to Ashley Judd, along with all these musicians like Moby and Cold War Kids and Modest Yahoo and Talib Kweli. We were all coming together inside of this film to bring a voice to the voiceless and people really responded. Um, we brought people out to theaters and it was one of the top documentaries of 2008 and very critically acclaimed, mostly because of the fact that it was so based off of this just desire to get the word out and i was so um i was so blown away at how much people wanted to help um it, that uh it just it just lit me up and i've been operating off of that model for the last 10 years your book is filled with stories um one story after another uh how did you happen to frame it that way tell me what stories do stories are um invitation. Um, and we tend to, when we're trying to get a message across, we tend to push information. And information is important, but um, stories have a way of delivering information that kind of goes past our mind and goes into our heart. Um, it doesn't ask permission as it passes through our mind because stories put us there. And um, especially good stories and well, well told stories. So I chose to open every chapter um, with a story. Um, I, I worked very hard to write it as if you're in the room, as if you're in inside of the story, almost like wearing a, 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 
you know, some VR goggles and able to look around and, and, and listen and see the story as it's being played out, whether it was, you know, 2000 years ago in the Roman Forum or 15 years ago in Liberia or a few years ago with me on Lake Volta in Ghana or even, you know, uh, you know, a, a few years ago at, at, in the Sheraton Ballroom in New York City at a big event. Um, I, I wanted to take or I want to take the the readers into a place that we can stand there and look around and see what's happening. And that's the invitation of of being able to participate in that story starts to loosen up our mental muscles so that we can absorb the information that will follow later in the chapter um, a little bit more effectively. That's always kind of been I've always been a show show then tell type of uh, communicator. And the first story in your book is about a certain rock group um, that 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 got started. Can you do you mind just telling that uh, uh, about uh, about the group that uh, you met and and how because I, the reason uh, it was was in the punchline for me um, of how that became important. Uh, you're talking about find your riot. Yeah, I am. I'm talking about that. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, without giving it away because I want people to like. There's a All little right. bit of a of a you know, of like, who is this? But I, I, I will, you know, the, I, I wasn't there. That was long before I could have, I could, I was able to go to a show, but, um, I talk a bit about a punk rock band, um, that was, um, um, very influential, uh, not only to culture, but quite frankly, to other, other bands. Um, you know, I, I played music for most of my adult life. I don't, I don't anymore. I haven't for the last 10 years, but, um, but, you know, uh, being in a band is like being a pirate and there is there is honor among thieves <laughs> and um, <laughs> you 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 are you influence each other. You play for each other. You respect each other. It's it is there's there's really nothing like it. I'm sure it's the same way in, in sports um, you're just very, very attentive to the way other people do their craft and the way that they handle and that and and. The one band that I talk about in particular was a punk rock band that was uh, very socially aware of what was happening around them in the late 70s. And keep in mind, the late 70s brought us not only punk rock, um, which shaped a lot of uh, uh, of um, rock music uh, going forward, not only through the 80s, but through the 90s as well. But it also brought us the beginnings of hip hop. And um, and if you think about it, these were these were two forms of expression, one very white one black um, that were speaking out against what they saw and speaking out for others that were being marginalized. And what's interesting about punk rock um, is it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it was a very white form of angst. Um, and this one band in particular um, uh, was basically speaking as white people to other white people saying that they have no right. They were basically saying, you are people of privilege and that if you don't use your privilege and leverage your privilege for those who aren't privileged, you'll just be you'll live a very dull life. And so they wrote a song. The band was called The Clash and they wrote a song called White Riot and basically saying that you need to find a riot for yourself. You need to go out and find a cause because if you aren't fighting for your own right, which is basically what they were saying, um, black community was having to fight for their own rights and fight for their own survival. Um, the, these white punk rockers were saying, yeah, you've, you're white and you don't have a riot and you need to go find one because that's the only way to live is to have a riot and have a cause and have something bigger than yourself that you're fighting for. Um, and so that's, that kind of opens up the book of, um, is this concept of, of find your riot, basically finding your purpose in life by um, addressing the problems of others. I'm speaking with Justin Dillon, founder and CEO of Made in the Free World and author of A Selfish Plan to Change the World. Finding Big Purpose in Big Problems. We'll continue the conversation in a moment. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schock. Be right back.
If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Justin Dillon. He's the founder and CEO of Made in a Free World and the author of A Selfish Plan to Change the World, Finding Big Purpose in Big Problems. Uh, the middle section of your of your book uh, has to do with um, uh, what keeps the world from changing, and there's a chapter in there that you entitled Bread and Circuses uh, about uh, Rome's Colosseum and how basically they kept people entertained. And, and as I was reading that chapter, I, uh, Bruce Springsteen came to mind uh, when he had that Rolling Stone interview and said that basically, you know, we sell out and uh, for the booby prizes of, you know, tel- televisions and, and whatever we might make. That, that isn't the American dream, he's saying. That's what we get fooled uh, by saying with the American dream. And I was thinking of that when we were talking about bread and circuses uh, f- for us, uh, th- that the one of the impediments uh, for our motivation to change the world is, is, the, is the stuff um, and, and the comforts. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, yeah, and and don't get me wrong. I've, I've, you know, I came out of the entertainment industry, so I, I was pushing leisure and pushing feeling um, for for many many years, um, and and would gladly continue to, <laughs> um, because I love it so much. Um, but the one of the benefits of living in an, in you know the leading empire for for however long we this is. Um, it's certainly we might I, I, I believe we might be in a lot of the twilight of, of, of our empire, but of the American empire. But um, uh, part of the benefits and Rome certainly saw this and that's why I refer to it. Part of the benefit is leisure. Um, you have uh, freedom of choice. You get to choose what to eat and choose where you live and what you do. I mean, these are these are freedoms that we we love and and but we don't even know how valuable they are because most of the world for most of time didn't have those those that freedom and um um it's interesting that we will you know listen to a three and a half minute song or watch an hour and a half hour movie all of which are great and i've made both of those and uh, both of those cultural artifacts and given to the world but in every one of those, whether it's a song or whether it's a movie, there is tension. We actually pay and love to experience tension. There's something about tension, the second act of a movie where we don't know if the hero is going to make it, or the verse right before the chorus where the dissonant chords start to wind us up and our shoulders start to start to rise up and then the chorus hits and we want to raise our hands. You know, we were hardwired for um, tension and release. And if all we do is experience that secondhand, um, then we're not living a full life. Meaning that if all we do is experience tension through a kind of fictitious um, and, and secondhand experience, then we're, it's, it's almost as if we're spoon feeding ourselves our life. Now, Part of what I tell people is that we've been taught to avoid chaos, but it's actually in chaos, um, in, especially in the chaos of others, that we find out what we're truly capable of. And that's where the self-help others part of this book is, is that I, I didn't know that I could make software that can help direct the purchasing decisions of large companies It to the tune of tens of billions of dollars that might end up saving and protecting millions of people's lives. That was not a script I wrote for myself at 21. I would have never known that. And I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of that in some small way. But the reason that I, that I get to experience that and other things like that are because I decided that I would apply some of my life to the real tension, not the fictitious ones I see in the movies or in, or in a song, but to the real tension of others. And that, that I created, you know, took some vulnerability in my life. But um, I, I explain in the book that when you make yourself vulnerable to the problems of others, you not only get help from others, but you get to you get to see what you're capable of. And that's where this, every self-help book is about helping you unlock who you are. I actually believe that you can unlock who you are when you find your right, find the thing inside of you that bothers you about the world that you want to fix, that you start to step out of it, and that you move away from just being satiated by you know, bread and circus and, and leisure and all the rest of it and actually take on somebody else's problems. You will be amazed. 
at what you can achieve. There's an author, uh, Frederick Beekner, uh, who said uh, something like that, uh, that our our, our life is where our deepest desire and the world's deepest need meets, that there's a, there's a connection point. Um, and I, and I, and I kind of hear you saying that in, in, in many ways uh, throughout this book that, yeah, uh, find a passion, find a riot, and also find your joy in that, um, in, 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 in meeting that. And, and move, what is the word you phrase you used? Okay, move in uh, to the chaos. Yeah, uh, rather yeah, than step into it, step yeah. in, step into the chaos. Yeah, and, and you also, I don't know, you wrote a chapter um, that you, um, I think, within the chapter itself, you said, "I wasn't sure I was going to share this." Uh, win at losing. Uh, you tell a story of of one of your failures uh, at at the National Mall. Can do you mind talking about that? What did you learn, and and what can we learn? Well, it was just one of many failures. That one was a big one because I lost a lot of money. And when you're when you're running, an, at the time I was running a nonprofit, and the last thing you want to do is let the word get out that you lose money. Um, but I'm a dreamer, and I believe in big things. And I believe that um, you know I've I've been um, part of my job is to build a movement, and um, and part of building movements historically is creating moments. Uh, moments where people feel the courage and they see something happen. I mean, there's there's been moments, you know, throughout every movement that ever was. And so I, the 150th anniversary of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation was coming up. And uh, I got this idea that we should uh, use that as a way of, um, you know, looking backwards at at where we've come and, and maybe where we've missed. Um, when it comes to uh, slavery um, and the fact that there are more slaves today than there was back then um, is interesting. And so using this 150th anniversary as a way to say, hey, this is great that we made this commitment. We need to kind of fulfill that promise and keep moving forward. And we have many people in slavery today and slave-like conditions um, um, here, here in the United States as well. So that was the idea. And I pitched it to a few folks, um, and the idea caught a lot of excitement very quickly, including the excitement of the White House. Um, and and um, uh, I, pe- very powerful people inside the White House sponsored me and were behind me and opening doors for me. And so very quickly, this idea of putting on an event in the National Mall um, with a concert event with all these artists and um, all these speakers. It was just moving at, at a breakneck speed. And so money was being thrown in and I was spending money and working to put this event on. And if you've ever done anything on the National Mall, very few people have, but to put an event on the National Mall, you have to get permission um, from the um, National Park Service. That too controls the National Mall. And so we had to go through a ridiculous series of getting permits and understandable. It is the National Mall. It is a very important, important uh, uh, piece of real estate in our in our in our country. But a um, lot of lot of cost, a lot of time, a lot of effort to get those permits to put on a concert. And uh, um, we were starting to get a lot of pushback um, from from uh, different areas. We couldn't quite figure out what it was. And uh, we had, I don't know, something like six weeks to go before the concert. Um, talent was booked. All the services were, everything was, everything was coming together. And we went in to get our final permit. And the National Park Service uh, said that, hey, just so you know, um, uh, the KKK are also having an event on the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And we're pretty sure they're going to protest your event. So we're requiring you to increase, you know, basically increase all these security costs for us, which made the event uh, impossible to pull off. And of course, um, you know, it was only a few weeks before um, President Obama's reelection campaign, or or the or the uh, the, the next um, uh, the next uh, election. So that that certainly raised some alarm bells inside of. Uh, <laughs> inside of that camp as well, understandably, uh-huh. um, when the KKK comes up and says they're going to show up at your event. So um, within very and, – and, and things were happening behind doors that I couldn't even – didn't even have access to. And so after working for a very, very long time and bringing on some very, very high-profile individuals um, and everybody knew that I was doing this, um, it I had to call everyone up, including some of my favorite artists and um, 
favorite people in, in business and tell them, hey, I failed. I can't do it. I've spent money. I've spent clout and it's over. Um, and um, the reason I call the chapter How to Win at Losing is that I actually believe that um, the size of your failures determines the size of your impact if you give it the power to shape you. And we tend to look at failures uh, through a cognitive dissonance, meaning that we believe that we're basically good and everything we're about is good. And if, if something happens against us, then it must be, you know, we, we choose not to believe in it. Or we choose not to believe what the world is telling us. The reality is there weren't that many, uh, you know, the, the, the KKK did show up that day, but there was nowhere near as many as the National Park Service said there would be. And it's easy to, to start to feel like a victim in a, in a situation like that. But for me, it was about, hey, this is where this is where the world's at. These are the challenges that we have. And if we can't be smarter and be able to plan and, and create moments with while there's still tension in the world to keep us from creating those moments, then um, then maybe we're not the right, you know, I'm not the right person for the job. And so to me, it, 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 it shaped me and helped me understand that um, no one, just because you want to do good in the world, doesn't mean that any, everyone's going to roll out the red carpet for you. Um, doing good and creating good and creating beauty in the world is, um, is a very artistic process. And you just have to show up to your canvas every day, um, despite the fact that nothing, nothing looks like it's coming together and you just show up and work. Um, and so that's what the, the, how to win at losing is, is believing that failure is, um, really the greatest teacher if you let it. Justin Dillon is my guest. He's the author of a selfish plan to change the world, finding big purpose and big problems. You mentioned artists and, and canvas. And of course, uh, one of your chapters on, on the end of how to make things happen is, is, is practice the art of change. So, so what, what is, what is the art of change? Well, I, you know, I, I knew I was an artist at a young age and, um, and I knew that art for me and, and for me, it was music. Um, but art for me was a way to take what's inside of me, the way that I see the world and get it, get it out and maybe perhaps change the world. Meaning, um, I, I, I want to, I, I, I see the world differently and I want to, I want to, to take what's inside of me, the way in which I see it and, 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 and manifest that through a song or through a film or even through enterprise software. And maybe that'll help make kind of create the, uh, or change the dissonance, so to speak, so that what the way that I see the world is actually the way the world becomes and what it is. That, that is, that is art. Um, whether you're Picasso or Bono or whatever, it every artist kind of takes what's inside of them and 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 pulls it out. I would argue that that's all also entrepreneurship. Um, you see the world a certain way, you see it working a certain way, and you you've somehow figured out how to create a product or a service that can get the world going in that way. And then you know you end up making a lot of money because of it, because you were Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, and you see the world going a certain way, and you step into it and do that. All of these things that we, you know, all admire with, as society, whether it's music and art, film or entrepreneurship, change is just the same. Creating change in the world requires people to think like an artist. When we think like scientists, which is also important, but um, to, to think about change that way, but, but scientists tends to, you know, we tend to hypothesize, test and prove. And while that's very important, the reality is if the world is broken and working a certain way, it kind of takes a crazy artistic um, what if type of type of mentality to go. Yeah, I think we actually can end slavery. I think we actually can end tuberculosis. I think we actually can um, create some racial healing, despite the fact that all the evidence points against it. And I'm going to step into that. And I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to I'm going to um, not just. Um, take outside uh, information and let that shape me. I'm going to shape the outside information. I'm going to challenge it. I'm going to challenge assumptions. I'm going to challenge the way things are done. Um, what I love about art, and I just had the ch I just got back from Paris and I got to spend a couple days in the museums, and you realize that you know all of these artists, the ones that we admire today that were alive you know 100, 200 years ago, 
they challenged their assumptions and they said, I, we see the world, you know, differently in different colors and in different brushstrokes and arguably their art changed the world. And so in the same way, I think that we need to look at how we, how we view change more as an artist and less as a scientist, meaning that it's okay to hope. And it's okay to want things and it's okay to not succeed and it's okay to fail at trying to change the world because any great artist or any great entrepreneur or anything that's new had a lot of failure in its in its um uh in its process and required someone to step in there and go yeah the, the thing that's inside of me is greater than the, than the thing that's against me or against my idea and i'm going to keep pushing on it I want to go back. Uh, my final question is, is going back again uh, to the beginning. Uh, you are the CEO and founder of Made in a Free World. Um, let's talk about what has happened uh, within these last 10 years in regards to uh, the problem of, of slavery. Have you, have, has, has it been addressed in, in a positive way? Has there been a decline in that amount? Has there been uh, energy to uh, make a difference there? Well, I think that you know, 10 years ago, when I really started in earnest on this issue, very few people knew about slavery. Um, keep in mind, in the last 10 years as well, we've seen um, in, uh, the way in which we communicate with each other, if you think about it, that the advent of mobile screens in the last 10 years and the proliferation of the, way, of the applications that we use on top of those mobile screens um, it is a big part of the story around the fact that Many, many, many people today know about slavery and even some specifics about slavery. And people from you know, from the Pope to the president are talking about it and using their power to make change around that. That's phenomenal growth in just 10 years. I mean, we really right. are, 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 are off to the races on this. Now, the challenge is we in this in this time frame. Our attention span has reduced as well. Just our global attention span due to mobile devices has reduced to less than that of a goldfish. Our short attention span is less than that of a goldfish just in that short amount of time. Um, has, has, has gone from like 15 seconds to something like eight seconds. So what we're seeing when it comes to building a movement and, 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 and creating real change is that um, – in a lot of ways, our movement to end slavery is is had an, um, what I call an embarrassment of enthusiasm, meaning just this incredible amount of enthusiasm around this issue. Um, so on that level, the desire for people to meaningfully change, create change, is massive. There's incredible will. What there hasn't been um, and, and what is catching up is the way to create change. Um, so 10 years ago, there were no laws about slavery and supply chains. Now there's laws in the US and in the UK and in France and Netherlands, and it's, and it's starting to happen in, um, in Australia and, and considering in Canada. The reality is countries are now saying, yeah, we actually are seeing this. We're seeing the challenge of this. We're seeing that we're purchasing, even as governments and, and, and larger companies, we're purchasing these products made with slavery. We need to do something about it. That didn't exist 10 years ago. So, so we are seeing kind of the, uh, what was a lot of enthusiasm start to move into more of a practical, pragmatic, transactional way of creating systemic change. And what I believe is that <clears throat> if we can't find ways to change systems, one of the reasons I called the book A Selfish Plan to Change the World is that changing the world is different than saving the world. Saving someone means you're pulling them out one by one out of a situation. And that's extremely important in times of crisis. But it's very, it's incumbent upon all of us to go, well, maybe we need to do the bigger work also of changing the world so that that doesn't keep happening. Maybe there's reasons that these people are falling into slavery. Maybe our purchases are, are proliferating that. Um, maybe there's ways in which trade deals work such that it creates all these problems. I mean, these are big, 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 like heady NPR level type of, of conversations, but they're also fantastically exciting because we don't remember when we look back in history, we remember people who changed the world, not people who saved the world and participating like an artist in changing the world. And changing the structures around the way the world works is both as difficult as it is thrilling. And it's that resistance that creates the purpose in our lives. And I truly believe that we can solve 
our own first world needs, our own first world poverty of meaning, while also dealing with the third world's poverty of means, means to justice and, and education and health and all the rest of it. Like our, our needs are inextricably tied together. And so this book is about helping us solve for the problems that we have about, around our existential questions about who we are and how far can we go and what, why are we here, while also dealing with the challenges of people who might not be here tomorrow because they don't have access to just the basic survival needs like justice, food, and uh, security. Justin Dillon has been my guest on Progressive Spirit. He's the founder and CEO of Made in a Free World and the author of A Selfish Plan to Change the World, Finding Big Purpose in Big Problems. An excellent book, an excellent conversation. Justin, thank you so much for your work and for spending time with me today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country, and I'm excited to welcome uh, KU Radio in Cutstown, Pennsylvania at Cutstown University. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to the weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. And you can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast. Hear it on your favorite podcast app, Stitcher or iTunes or wherever you listen. And and if you find an app that has a place to to put a review, please do one. Uh, That helps... uh, get a wider audience. If you do have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net. You can comment on Facebook and retweet us on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.